The Oscars feel like uh, ancient history now, don't they? <laughs> yeah, it's so, so incredibly irrelevant at the and moment. And you know what's weird is that the Oscars used to be the end of March. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. It was late March. We'd have another a whole... We wouldn't even get the nominations until mid-February. Yeah. And then they, it wouldn't be until the end of March. Now everything is so accelerated. Yeah. There's so much more of everything. And it all happens sooner and faster and uh, with more intensity. Something has to give at and a certain it's point. Over. I, I always point out to people, E.T. In, 19, in the early 1980s made $400 million domestically, which today is still an astronomical amount. Mm. Nothing. It's so rare that things make $400 million. And it did it over the course of 12 months. It yeah. did it without making in more than $12 million in any given weekend. $12 million doesn't even get you in the top 10 anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, but of course, back then, uh, and, and, and even further back, a film could live uh, in theaters for years. A film could certainly live in theaters for months. And of course, the windows were all different. One of the reasons that could happen is because there was no VHS or DVD window to try to make. Uh, and, and, and there would be an audience for that film. Yeah. Um, six months later, because they would know that when that film finally left theaters, very likely you wouldn't be able to see it again for years. And the this is continuing our nostalgia, reminiscing from last week. But you know, Howard's End mm. is recent, which was what was that about uh, nineteen ninety? I mm -hmm. guess about nineteen ninety. Uh, Howard's End was platformed for over a year. Yeah, and. That thing loitered around for the better part of the year of its release, just making a little bit here and a little bit in this art house. And then it got like, you know, eight or nine Oscar nominations, whatever it was, a whole boatload of them, including Best Picture. And then suddenly it made more in like three weeks than it made yeah. in the preceding eight months. That was when that the whole notion of the Oscar bump, that Academy Award yeah. bump, that sort of thing. And there are a few films that got, that got that kind of bump like like uh, like Howard's End did. It really got, I don't got know a if that giant bumps, bump. I don't know if that bump still exists anymore. I don't know. Well, it doesn't. You know why? It doesn't because of uh, DVD and Blu-ray. Yeah. That's why, because there are. I mean, that was still that was still the uh, the era of VHS. Yeah, and VHS wasn't structured. It wasn't built into the the the, the timetable the way mm. the DVD is. You know, um, because it was still sell through and rental, and there were a lot of rental stores, and you know things could still platform. Everything now is on a very strict timetable. Nobody actually wants a movie to perform in theaters for 10 months. No. Yeah. They don't because... You'll, you'll be cheating yourself out of ancillary income. Yeah, there's another movie waiting behind us that we got to move into those screens. So whether you like it or not, yeah. uh, you're moving on to streaming and DVD and digital and, and these things are... And we've already recorded the commentary and we've already recorded all of the... We've already cut all the featurettes. And the next step, the next three steps in your ancillary life... That's already scheduled. That's already built in. So you're going to be in theaters for three or four months, and that's it. And mm -hmm. if people are still running around the block, they're you know if they're they're packing theaters to be able to see it. Well, then they'll just have to enjoy it in its next life because we're pulling it from those theaters anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah, it's built in. Well, man, oh man, oh man, it's a whole it's different game, baby. Whole different game. Well, anyway, uh, otherwise we are now uh, slowly creeping into uh, to summertime, so we've got a we got a lot to talk about. I'm going to make mention right up at the top because we got Easter coming. Easter's on April mm -hmm. Fools this year. That doesn't often happen. 
So uh, a couple of things that we can, they're sort of, you know, loosely tied to Easter. We don't have anything that is straight up Easter themed. No, uh, no, you know, Easter bunny and egg collecting and uh, whatnot. <laughs> and of course, you know, Passover coincides with Easter as well for all the obvious uh, religious reasons. So whichever your religious holiday, uh, got a couple of things here. One from the Smithsonian Channel. It is Bible hunters, bold explorers who risked it all to reveal the earliest Bible texts. Uh, you know, I was a history major before I was a film major, and uh, took a lot of really great classes and kind of had a focus on on, on uh, ancient uh, religious history as well, which I just, you know, the classical world fascinates me and Mesopotamia and ah, all that yes. stuff. I love all that stuff. And that's why I troll museums as often as I can. Anyway, the uh, this is a really, really interesting doc, and it's fascinating. Uh, Jeff Rose, who is a historian and archaeologist, uh, is your host on this. And it uh, it's really really interesting because it goes into the uh, it goes into an, an aspect of uh, archaeology and anthropology and and literary history, uh, frankly, which is um, which is really interesting, which is getting to the root of all the documents that constitute the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, when did they originate? What were they based on? What are the sources of all these documents? Mm. And that's something that you know when you take history in high school. Uh, yeah. You're reading it out of books. When you take history in college, you're reading original sources. Yes. And then there is, and that's the most interesting aspect of history, which is you have to question what is the authenticity of the source? What is the authority of the source? Can I confirm the source? Are there other sources that either agree or that disagree, that contradict? And if they contradict, what do you, you know, you get into all of these really, really interesting uh, methods. And I, I still love that. Well, stuff. the historicity of all of these things is all, often quite fascinating. It's, it's so fascinating. So uh, I, I highly recommend this. This gets into a lot of that stuff and does, it's, does so in layman's terms. And uh, it's really, really, really interesting. And uh, for those who uh, want their, uh, their Easter with a, a bit more straight up, religious uh, orthodoxy. There's a really interesting uh, set here from Lionsgate. You know, the um, the people who've been doing these these word-for-word uh, -word, uh, gospel translations, they've made uh, all four films now, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John, all with the same actor. And you can get all four of them now in the gospel collection. What's interesting to me, you know, there was a Canadian film some years ago, about a year and a half before Mel Gibson's uh, Passion of the Christ, called Gospel of John, which was also a word-for-word a -word, uh, adaptation of the Gospel of John, which was a really, really interesting movie, uh, had a lot of, you know, had a... Had some had a great score and uh, some really interesting stuff to it. Uh, I actually prefer that one to this one, but there is no equivalent to the other three. So, um, you know, this is an interesting uh, this is an interesting collection. These movies tend to be very very long because they are r quite literally word for word gospel transitions to movies. So, uh, Gospel of Matthew is well over three hours and. Uh, the uh, the Gospel of John is is not far from it. Uh, Gospel of Luke, strangely, is really 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 long. Uh, <laughs> it's like uh, almost four hours. So in any case, yeah. Um, is but anyway, you know, it's a it's a nice thing to have on hand for people who are uh, who who want to have a dramatic recreation of uh, of religious material. So the Gospel Collection from Lionsgate and uh, Bible Hunters from the Smithsonian Channel. So whatever your religious holiday, uh, that's something to think about to, uh, to 
give things a little kick there in uh, late March, early April. Late March, early April. So, uh, Tim, where should we let television or new movies? Where should we jump into? Uh, next? Let's jump on some new movies because okay. a little ling- a few lingering from from Oscar yes. season. They're downsizing. I see you got over there, <laughs> um, which I think was a film that that uh, you know Alexander and uh, Matt and some of those folks thought we might have been talking about. Yeah, you know, well, the you know, Alexander. Alexander Payne is two-time Academy Award winner. Uh, I, I'm sure I've mentioned in this time, this show many, many times. Alexander Payne was a uh, was a student at UCLA in the grad program when I was there undergrad. I remember very well. You know, he was a, he was a very popular TA in the, in the production, and he was kind of a kind of a star in the program at the time. There were a few people there who were sort of on par. Uh, uh, Gina Prince, now mm. Gina Gina, Gina Bythewood Prince, yeah. who's done Love and Basketball and some some other fine films, was also in the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, Doug Prey, who's done a number of documentaries we talked about a couple of weeks ago, who's a very respected documentarian. So we had some fun people in the program. Me. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, so downsizing um, is Alexander Payne's first misfire. And yeah. it, it, he almost felt it seemed like he was the the golden boy who could do no wrong. Well, I had issues with the descendants. We all know about those issues. But but uh, um, uh, but this this is straight up tank. But this one this is this failed, and it was a big movie. Much bigger. It was bigger, his actually. biggest. It's yeah. his biggest biggest budget he's ever had. Uh, Special um, effects and everything. Uh, a high concept movie about a period in the, the near future when human beings are able to reduce themselves mm-hmm. through some uh, product, process uh, discovered in Sweden. Because you know, that's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're able to actually physically reduce themselves uh, in size. The idea here being that if you are smaller, it takes less to live. And uh, whatever yeah. it is that you have uh, as a big person will go much further when you are a small person. You're stretching, stretching a dollar. Stretching a dollar, like literally. Uh, and, and, and the notion being that the sort of problems and issues that exist in the larger world, mm-hmm. pun intended, uh, you carry with you uh, when you get smaller. Yeah. And they just sort of duplicate themselves. Okay, there's an interesting sort of idea inside that. And then yeah. this movie goes hard sideways. <laughs> hard sideways. Into, yeah. uh, for, for all kinds of reasons. But nevertheless, um, here it is. 4K Ultra HD. Um, uh, all kinds of stuff on here. Special features uh, for you to check out. It's an interesting film in terms of uh, its, its conception uh, and its execution uh, visually. And it's also interesting in terms of uh, the many ways in which it fails. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it is, it is. I, I, it's not a film that I can really recommend, but it is an interesting failure because Alexander is not a slouch. I mean, mm-hmm. when he, what he puts into this is a is a level of of great professionalism. But uh, it it just it's it's true. It once once you are once Matt Damon gets shrunk down. Uh, there's really not much left for the film to do, and then it becomes kind of it, it goes into this very strange mm. class class yeah. it, the the class issues, and yeah. uh, you know once you're shrunk down, the class issues don't go away; they they just change. And I guess the you know the idea being you can't run away from your troubles; the troubles will always follow you. Mm. Well, there are there are maybe a lot of ways to get there, baby. So so here's what's interesting: they, what they attached to the the cover of this was this little tiny Manila folder. Yeah. With a literal little shrunk down mailing label, which is exactly the mailing label with which it was mailed to me. You see that? Oh yes, it's your yeah. Yes, it yeah, says there, so. WadeMajorDigigods.com. So, so it is exactly the mailing label. They just they made a little version of it. Yeah. Uh, I have not opened to see what is in this. Yeah. What so let's see what was so important. Little the, Manila envelopes. A little down. tiny Manila envelope, and what they sent. Let's and... see. 
What they sent was oh, a little tiny version. It's a little, it's a little mini version of, <laughs> of the 4K, the, of, of the 4K DVD yeah. box. It's literally little, the same thing. Literally the same thing. And then uh, a little they bit basically bigger than the postage stamp. And then they took, they actually took the press release and they shrunk the press release down press to an release. unreadable couple of pieces yeah. of paper. Isn't that clever? I don't. Uh, yeah. I, I, in other words, in other words, this is really just useless. This is it, supposed to. Yeah. This is a joke. That it's that it's kind of gag. thinking. It's that kind. Of thinking that put that movie in the tank, <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Probably should get ideas for your movies from some. Gosh, heavens to Betsy. Uh, downsizing. Right. What else we got? So here? let's see. Uh, we have got a few things. Uh, it's not. A, it's not a huge week, but uh, we got a few things. Uh, based on a true story. Uh, based on a story. Sorry, not a true story. That would be. That would be Children of the Corn. It yeah. would be amazing if Children of the Corn were based on a true oh, that'd story. That would be great. That would be so much better in every yeah. possible way. Stephen King, based on the Stephen King adaptation, Children of the Corn, Runaway. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, you know, adaptation uh, or or reconceiving yeah. and extending and reconfiguring yeah. of the classic Stephen King yeah. sort of thing. I remember loving all those sort of adaptations from back in the day. Uh, this is whatever it tells the story of a young pregnant one, blah, 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 one of those kind of things. Special feature, a deleted scene. Yeah, that deleted scene. That's what you get. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry. If there's still milk and children of the corn after all these years, that's. Uh, it, it, does that even have it, any any currency still with any kind of an audience? You know what? It might have something to do with the fact that it was such a popular. Oh yeah, film. I yeah. Think that, I think it might have more to do yeah. with that than anything. Just to be else. able to slap uh, yeah. the king name on the. Uh, sure, of course, because if you're if you're the company that still has. The, license, the rights, the rights to yeah. Children of the Corn, and you can put something else out and, and take advantage of King's name. You're making a new Children of the Corn movie. Exactly. Of course All you, you have are. to spend money on is a nice box. That's it. Uh, small town crime. Uh, kind of surprised that this didn't uh, didn't kind of stick around a little bit. Um, uh, this is this is actually a really smart indie with a great cast. Uh, stars John Hawks and you know everybody else in this thing. Robert Forston and Octavia Spencer and Clifton Collins Jr. I saw that for the show. I saw that I for love. the show. Uh, Anthony Anderson. I mean, you know, it's it's really good. Small town crime. It's a good little film, and John Hawks is uh, is really really sharp. And uh, I, you know, this just kind of didn't go anywhere. Why do you think this didn't really? You know, I saw that movie for the show. Talked yeah. it up real nice. Uh, it, it, it's just the shape of things today. You yeah. know. Um, uh, I, I don't know. It's just a, that's the way it works sometimes. Yeah. Just the shape of things. But that's a neat little movie. It's a neat like little it movie. Quite a lot. Uh, John Hawks is a, is an ex cop, kind of a dirty ex cop, dirty Harry style guy. You know, you, you you stick around long enough, you just you 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 go you go south, and he he drinks too much, and uh, it's a and then it goes from there into a uh, kind of a redemption trajectory. Yeah, this he's got the thing of it is the, the thing that I liked about that movie. Octavia Spencer in that movie is playing his sister. Yeah, his actual sister. Yeah, and there's a reason why she's his sister. Yeah. They were raised together. And, yeah, and the reason they, they, they makes sense, and and thus uh, she's married to Anthony Anderson. Thus he is playing his brother-in-law. Yeah, and and in that dynamic, uh, you know, because she loves her brother, uh, who is this screw up that you just described, yeah. and and, uh, and 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 it's just a neat thing to see this uh, middle-aged black lady talking crap to John Hawks, <laughs> who is really just her little brother, and she's yeah. talking smack to him the way she talks smack to her absolutely because he's her little brother in the show yeah. and it's just a neat thing that yeah. i liked a lot about that movie no i i, I like it too and uh, it's got deleted scenes and extended scenes and featurettes <laughs> and three commentaries which are all really fun uh director's commentary of course is the uh the most interesting of all of them but um yeah you know i, I give it a shot it's a, it's worth a little movie worth checking out small town crime
And what are we going to do that? Let's see here. Kevin Dillon. You know, um, it's funny. Years and years and years ago, uh, uh, Kevin Dillon was in, was in a remake of The Blob. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. It's like in the middle 80s or yeah. something. And for about a week, he was actually a higher profile actor uh, than his brother. Yeah, for a minute and a nah. half. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when he was in that remake of The Blob. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, this is a uh, this is uh, one of those one of those uh, car movies, one of those off road uh, sort of car movies, uh, uh, and it's, it's kind of neat. A little bit, a, a little bit of fun uh, in this thing. You, you get inside the cars, the trucks, there's a competition, uh, who will win, all that kind of stuff. Whatever, it's, it's neat. There is a bonus feature, an off-road gag reel, uh, in which these guys uh, are driving around doing all kinds of wacky stuff. Anyway, it's a neat little movie. Dirt then, is the name of the movie. Dirt. And and then we have Pitch Perfect three. Uh, you know. I, I loved Pitch Perfect. Ugh. I mean, Pitch Perfect came out. It was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It was about a subject nobody had ever dealt with before, the acapella group competitions. <laughs> it, that movie was so perfect in the comedy, the casting, all the, 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 the supporting parts. Everything about it was just absolutely beautiful. And then they came out with Pitch Perfect 2, hmm? which, frankly, was not terrible, but hmm? it wasn't very good. Not, not ne- nearly as good. Not nearly as good. And they switched up the cast a little bit. Uh, you know, they... They, they, uh, they got rid of a few people. Yeah. yeah. yeah Focused it more on the girls. The first one was that straight-up boy-girl thing. Yes. And the then middle this, one was... And then it was like a... It was a German group. You know, yeah. they were going up against a German group in this one. And that's... Okay. It's like a big international thing. And then this. And then... And well, in, and in that one, you know, uh, it, it, like you know, Keegan Michael Key was the saving grace of that thing. Yeah. Let's let's be honest. That he, one was directed by Elizabeth. Uh, the first Banks. one was directed. Who directed the first one? It was, it was a, sta- a stage director. Stage director. Did the yeah. first one. Yeah. But and the then Elizabeth Banks, Banks who yeah. produced it and who acts in it, of course, in a very very funny bit. Uh, she directed the second one, and that was well, you know, I mean, it's not her fault. It just it's it's milking too much of the same thing. And Keegan Michael Key comes in and mm-hmm. does some very very funny bits as a music producer. Who just has no patience for stupid people, and uh, it's you know it's a perfect thing for him. And and they switched up the cast a little bit, and then and Pitch Perfect three. So Pitch Perfect three, <laughs> which is what we've been working our way to, which which I didn't hate in terms but of the performances, you, but there is no movie there. There is no movie here. The perf- you're you're basically sitting there just by honestly. Yeah. Here, here's my recommendation. It's we have it here on Blu-ray and 4K Ultra HD. If you're gonna get it, get it on the 4K. It doesn't cost much more, and the sound is so much better. Yeah. Because all you all you really want out of this is audio. You want lossless, crazy audio, and it sounds beautiful. But here's the thing. Let's be honest. You're you're putting this in. And you're just going to fast forward from musical piece to musical piece. What happens between the songs, what yeah. happens between the a cappella performances, you, it will ruin you. Yeah, some will, of a faux Bondian story oh, with all kinds of goofy crap going on and explosions and, 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 it, and, and Fat just, Amy running around with her dad. And it's, it, it's just all awful. It's just all awful. Yeah, it's not good. It's but just, the performances are kind of fun. It's a boy-girl thing again. The yeah. girls get back together for the last time yeah. to go on this sort of tour of uh, USO it's shows. USO tour, yeah. USO tour, yeah. So you have these you have like a country group and you got like a boy group. The performances are fun. And, and, and that opening performance 
Mm. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, yeah. it opens with a performance. And frankly, you, 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 you listen to that, or you listen to it, watch yeah. it, listen to it, whatever it is, you got the whole movie but in, it's you're just, done. It's not fun once they're out of college. No. It just isn't. It really isn't. I, I, I don't know. Well, anyway. Right, one of those kind of things. Yeah. Divine Order. I loved this film by Petrol Volpe. It was so neat. And, it, and it, it, there was an education in this movie for me. Switzerland. 1971. I did not know this, folks. As late as 1971, yep. women did not have suffrage in Switzerland. Correct. And, uh, you know, I, I, this movie comes out last year. I, watched, mm-hmm. I saw this movie for the radio show. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, am I getting this right? I really have to stop the movie, go yeah. to Wikipedia, look no, it up true. to see if they had made this stuff up. No, this is true. True. Switzerland. Yes. Uh, and uh, there was an entire campaign for yep. it. There was a thing. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was. It's quite fascinating. But there it is. This movie, Divine Order, is about that period, sort of filtered through the life of this one a woman and her friends who work at this, who work at this factory and their campaign. Campaign as they join uh, for the cam- join the campaign for, uh, for women's suffrage. It's really really funny and and uh, and quite a little education. Uh, and on the heels of uh, you know the whole Me Too thing, yep. learning that Switzerland that in Switzerland women did not get suffrage until 1971. Or I mean, dude, that was a little wake up call for me. I briefly lived in Switzerland. Uh, ah, uh, your sister in law. Uh, no, no, no. This before I was in France. Oh, back in, back in the mid eighties. Yeah, oh. I, I I was in Switzerland for a bit, and my mother actually lived in Switzerland after uh, when she was first, you know, after World War II, when she was first being a governess, doing mm. the whole sound of music thing. Yeah, she was in uh, Bern, I think it was. Anyway, I was in the French part of Switzerland uh, in Lausanne, and um, I can tell you, Switzerland is a very unusual country. Mm. It's a wonderful country, but it's an unusual country on a lot of levels, and especially a place like Lausanne, which is a college town. Mm. You know, you know, like Lausanne is an amazing, I mean, if you think Geneva is an international city, which it is for all the obvious reasons, Lausanne is crazy international. It, it's, it, you walk around Lausanne, you hear every language in the world. I mean, Lausanne is just a, a rainbow of internationality of people from all parts of the world who all go to Lausanne to study at various universities and study things. And, you know, you've got people there from, from Mozambique and from Peru and from Fiji and, you know, from Eastern Europe. And it's, it's just, it's quite amazing. Um, but here's, here, was the, here was the thing, and I'm, you know, this is a tangent, but, you know, it is a requirement in Switzerland that every single male in the country, every male citizen of Switzerland must own a gun, mm-hmm. a, a military weapon a military authorized weapon because you are the de facto standing army of the country in yeah. case it ever gets invaded yeah and that's just a, that's a that's a thing and and you know if you're male and you're swiss then you are a soldier who may be called up at any given time run grab your grab your rifle and which happened a few times over the study your <laughs> stu- study your western european history yeah, every now and again yeah. the the well, it would get invaded by the and it's, russians it's a, and it's a, yeah it, there there's there's reason for it and the, the the political structure in switzerland is fascinating you know it's it's a confederation mm. anciently and the helvetian confederation and it's a, it's a really interesting country um, and then it gets very bizarre when you go to the countryside and you feel like you're you're trapped in some kind of a weird Truman Show kind of <laughs> staging of a Swiss Miss commercial, and you go, that's not that lawn could not be that groomed, and that lady who just came out to to sing and have birds land on her shoulders and and beat <laughs> that rug to the tune of the song that I is coming from somewhere. This is a weird country. Anyway, that's Switzerland. So. 
let's see. Oh, and we got uh, one more uh, new movie here before we jump. I want to make some, mention some cult stuff because we've got some really cool cult movies. The Vanishing of Sydney Hall. Oh, yeah. Elle uh, Fanning and uh, Nathan Lane. Yeah. yeah. Nathan oh, Lane. yeah. yeah. Nathan, La- Nathan, Lane. Nathan Lane and Elle Fanning in a movie together. Go figure. Uh, so anyway, this is a uh, kind of a, 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 a middling thriller, I guess, with a very, very decent cast. And uh, here's my question with this. I mean, there's some very good people. Logan Lerman is a really good actor. Michelle Monaghan, I, I adore. I don't know why she isn't doing better stuff. Um, Nathan Lane just kind of pops in for... for a, Tim Blake Nelson's in it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Elle Fanning is making... I, 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 I'm rooting for her, but I'm beginning to wonder if she isn't... Well, don't forget she was in Beguiled. She's she was in, in, in Beguiled, which, in a, by the way, you know, Beguiled... That was the movie I thought we would have been talking about. That won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival and it vanished, vanished at the yeah. end of the year. Yeah. Now, I think the reason for that... Is because some people raised the uh, the question that that, that beguiled basically, be, unlike the book, and to some degree unlike the original Eastwood film, mm. uh, completely ignores the existence of slaves. Yeah, th- which I loved about yeah. about Sophia's uh, uh, conception yeah. uh, of that film. A lot of people saw, felt a lot like of people that hated it. A lot of black like, people hated it. A lot of black people they felt like it. No, no, no. I thought it was but, I thought it was a brilliant choice on her part because to that that world, slaves were invisible. They were invisible. If you put slaves in that movie, yeah, then what are those what are those actors? Those slaves? Sure. Those black actors? What are they doing in that movie? Uh, I, I I know what they're doing in that movie. They're getting beat down. Yeah belittled and everything else that you can think of yeah. by these young white girls yeah. and whatever few uh, soldiers yeah. that's all they're going to be doing in the movie yeah. uh, and and I didn't want to see that I didn't need to see that particularly to tell this story which had nothing to do with the slaves anyway this is the way she put the slaves in the movie by the way mm-hmm. She's, she has a character say uh, 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 when, 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 the, uh, when the Yankees came the slaves all run off to fight with them Mm-hmm. That was the way she put the slaves in the movie. The black folks in her conception of the movie decided to take up arms and fight for their own freedom, so we ain't got time to hang around this boarding school with these white girls no more. Yeah. Uh, brilliant choice. I thought it was wonderful. This is another thing that she did that I think is uh, brilliant in that movie. This is yeah. not the movie we're talking yeah. about. But I, know it, I know it with Elle Fanning. Um, in, in, in that movie... Uh, Colin Farrell, who plays the same character that yeah. Clint Eastwood played, she made him. He's from Ireland, but but he, she left him from Ireland. Yes. Uh, why? Because at that during that period, right. a great many rich people up north yes. paid poor people to go fight their wars for them. Yes, they did. He got paid by a rich man to go mm-hmm. fight in that war, which is what actually happened, and that's what's actually in that book too. In the yeah. book, it worked that way too. Yeah. So no, this was a very politically astute movie on I her part. So. Uh, with respect to both of those things, we're actually talking about so, this movie. So that brings me to Al Fanning. So, so here, uh, here's the thing about Al Fanning's choices. I, I find it interesting that she. I mean, you're certainly not going to turn down Sofia Coppola, but her role in that movie is a very austere. Mm. It's a very austere, um, sexually repressed, uh, sexually immature young woman. Yeah. Okay. And then here she's playing the girlfriend of an author who vanishes, and then you know, ten years later, the, the, there's an investigation, and uh, you know, it kind of gets into all the, the the details of the disappearance and who's who or what is responsible, et cetera, et cetera. And she's also very austere and kind of um, icy in this. Mm. And I'm wondering if you know, there's a there's sort of a um, I don't know if maybe a naif like quality is the way to say it that she's 
she's disappearing into and i and and i'm you know she played she played a transgender character mm-hmm. in that that uh, one of the very last Weinstein films before the whole Harvey thing exploded and i'm wondering it you know i get it she's really trying to stretch as an actress but it feels like she's stretching on the margins well she's leaning she's leaning a little too heavily into a, a thing that is you know her nature she's ridiculously beautiful yeah uh obviously when casting directors and directors particularly male directors but female yeah. they was using that winding ruffin film yeah that was yeah. literally That's about right. her beauty yeah uh or you know the beautiful and what and how they can be eaten yeah and uh and and, and look i get that uh, uh she turned out to be somewhat more attractive physically than dakota Although Dakota yeah. is still a more substance, substantive yes. actor, if you've been watching yeah. that that Western thing that she sure. does, uh, what um, Elle is going to have to do is lean into her acting chops now, yep. and not depend on that beauty, and uh, and then we will see whether or not she has to stay in power. Absolutely true. All right, so I've got a bunch of culty things yeah. here. Uh, got one here, which is uh, is a, a, a documentary, and then the others are all just straight up cult movies. the uh, The documentary uh, I'm including it here. It's the Sunshine Makers because it's the uh, the history of LSD, and um, you know, the LSD has been the subject of so many cult films. Uh, Corman and everybody else, they've made movies about it. So it, um, the way this is done has a very culty quality to it. So uh, if you are a fan of those movies and if you want to see the subject treated semi-seriously but at least with a, you know, with a twinkle and a, and a little tongue in its cheek, this is the one to check out. Uh, the Sunshine Makers, this is from Film Rise. And then we also have, as long as we're on the subject of drugs, Red Crocodile, director's cut. Uh, I didn't know there was another cut. I'd never even heard of this movie. This is also <laughs> this is also from um, MVD Visual, who released the other one for uh, for Film Rise. Uh, and uh, this is a, Brock Madsen plays a guy who uh, takes this drug called Crocodile, and uh, it then segues into this very bizarre kind of post-apocalyptic um, hallucinatory journey, which reminds me a little bit of a few things. Like what was the, uh, uh, what was the thing with, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm drawing a total blank on it. Um, mm. Oh, anyway, there, it'll, it'll occur to me. The, uh, the, there's, there's a whole subgenre of movies where you question whether or not you are actually in the real world or in the mind of the character. Mm-hmm. And they all deal with some degree of drug addiction. Memento and, is one of them. Me- Memento is it's, one of them. Uh, well, yeah. actually, you know what I was actually thinking of is Inception. Inception oh, yeah. is, is the, right, but Memento to some degree as well. Yeah, I suppose. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 the, the Verhoeven film with yeah. uh, with Arnold that they remade with Colin Farrell. Uh, Domiziano Cristofaro directs the film uh, fairly well. I mean, this is an Italian production all the way through, and uh, you know it's uh, on Blu-ray. Doesn't need to be on Blu-ray, but I guess it, I guess they felt it did. From the Redemption line over at uh, Kino. Comes The Orchard and Murder. Uh, the Orchard and Murder was made in 1981 in the UK, and it is uh, it it has something of a cult following. Otherwise, it wouldn't be part of the Redemption line. But all, the Redemption line, of course, also deals with films that have a certain uh, aesthetic maturity, a certain quality. So the um, this is uh, you know a one of those movies that feels a little bit like an exploitation film and a little bit like an art film all at the same time. Uh, you know, it get it goes off the rails in a few places, but it is really quite interesting. The uh, the BFI, the British Film Institute, went ahead and restored this, 
And uh, the most interesting thing on it is uh, the, uh, the 1970 documentary featurette short directed by the film's uh, director, which uh, called The Showman, which is r- really almost worth the purchase alone. Really, really, really interesting. And um, you get the, you know, Christopher uh, Marnum, the director, talks a little bit about The Showman. You also get uh, a bunch of interviews. And, uh, you know, uh, if, you, if you like kind of weird, dark, 70s-styled British murder thrillers, uh, with a little bit of an exploitation salt on them. Uh, this is uh, this is not bad. The Orchard and Murder. Um, much more, much more grindhouse is the Blood Spattered Bride from mm. Mondo Macabro. Uh, this is just straight up cheesy, wonderful gore, and uh, Mondo Macabro specializes in this stuff. This was made in 1972 in Spain by Vicente Aranda. Uh, this is, you know, Spain's version of the Italian genre that known as uh, giallo nah. is, is even more cheesy. They, they take their cue from Italy and then they just, they go over the edge and they, in many respects, it's almost more like an arty, ver- an artier version of a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. Uh, but it's straight up gore, gothic horror. Um, you know, really, really bizarre, far out stuff, a little bit of a little, um, Kind of uh, this almost a British Gothic horror uh, quality to it of the Ken Russell variety. Uh, you get some interviews on here, audio commentary, um, uh, some deleted scenes and alternate scenes. It's uh, you know it's strictly if you like that kind of a Euro horror film. And then even more, even going south, even more. This is just totally off the hook. Uh, I don't even know if I would call this uh, giallo film, even though it's uh, it's an Italian production uh, directed by Umberto Lenzi. Um, the, it is called Eaten Alive. This is from Severin. Uh, the Tim, I'd like for you to read the tagline on this. Read the tagline right at the top. A, a, a relentless feast of human flesh. That says it. That's all. Yeah, that's all you that's need to know. About. There you go. A Thank relentless you. feast. Uh, this thing was alleged. <laughs> this was allegedly banned in 38 countries. Uh, most movies are banned in 38 countries. Yeah, at least. I could, I could come up with. I could come up with 38 countries that, that, that uh, you know that, that banned ET if you want. Uh, but uh, anyway, this is uh, you know there was a for a moment. In the sixties and seventies, there's a there's a there's a cannibal uh, genre, and this comes kind of at the end of it. This is at the in 1980, uh, many years after the cannibal genre really kind of ran its course, and for some reason they felt that they needed to come up with another one, and it's just uh, it, it's really quite terrible. But uh, <laughs> if you if you like it, um, here's one. This is the last one. This is on DVD only. This is a load of fun. Codename Diablo. This is an ab- absolute blast. This is, of course, an adults-only thing, but uh, this is a. This is basically if if Russ Meyer had made one of those uh, spy spoofs in the late '60s, mm-hmm. early '70s, if Russ Meyer had gone and done something like Barbarella or uh, or, or frankly any of the films in that in that genre, um, Modesty Blaze, yeah, right. There's a yeah. whole there's a whole ton of them. If uh, if Russ Meyer had gone in that direction, uh, this is exactly what he would have made. It's uh, there's just nothing else. There's no other way to describe this. Uh, it, it's it's very very funny. It's very silly, and uh, the the uh, how, oh Tim, how would you describe the things that I'm trying to be circumspect about with uh, the three actresses? Their their attributes. We would call them uh, siliconish. Siliconish. Thank you. Exactly what I was looking for. 
Uh, so anyway. In an 80s kind of way. In yeah. a very 80s kind of way. More than 80s. They're not even remotely very good actresses, and you're probably not going to notice. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they make for great, well-endowed spies. And uh, I still, of course, prefer uh, Emma Peel. Always uh, will. Yeah. But, you know, if Emma Peel had undergone some kind of implant <laughs> surgery and decided to just throw it all to the wind, uh, she would be starring with uh, two of her friends in Codename Diablo. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they, it's just, it is a lot of fun. It actually is a lot of silly fun. They know, they, they know they're not making a serious movie. I, I've, I've, I've enjoyed that stuff back in the day. I enjoy it now. You know, all of it. From Barbarella to, you know, just all of it. I am just so sorry, and I, I need to follow up on this. I'm so sorry that, that Russ Meyer's stuff is not on Blu-ray. They have done nothing with that library since they released them to DVD. What's that about? Because Is that about... Uh, well, Russ owned all of his own stuff. Yeah. He owned all of it all, every last bit of it. And, uh, you know, it was, gosh, 16, 17 years ago. Because you guys, I, I remember you guys wandering around that warehouse. Well, Ray did. Ray, uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we tried to talk Russ into being in schlock. And um, I I had a conversation with him. Ray had a conversation. You know, my conversation was uh, was was went off the rails a little bit. Because I told <laughs> him, I said, you know, Sam, Ar I'm sure I've told this on the show, so <gasps> indulge me. I, I said, you know, Sam Arkoff already talked to us. We've interviewed Sam, and I thought that that would leverage him, and that he, you know his pride would would it would bite him, and he'd he'd say Sam talked to you. Yeah. Well, all right, I'll talk to you because you know I'm not going to let Sam be in a movie that I'm not in. And he says to me, he goes, Sam wanted me to make a movie for him once, and I said, F you. <laughs> And, uh, of course, he uh, spelled it out much more bluntly, uh, and uh, I, that was it. Uh, and, I, and I thought, oh, there's uh, no penetrating. And then I called Ray, and I was like, Ray, he's, he's playing hardball. And then so Ray called him and then had, like, about an hour-long conversation. And clearly, Russ was planning to make a documentary about himself, uh, which he never did. Yeah. And then his sister took ill, and then he himself took ill, and his sister passed, and he eventually passed. And I, at one point, I was in touch with his assistant, and I, I just don't know where his films are right now. I mm. don't know who... Who inherited the rights, but uh, they should be on Blu-ray. Yeah. They really should, and I, I should probably reach out and investigate the that. Because, archival work needs to be done there. Uh, you know what? Yeah. I, surprisingly, no. Russ cared for his elements like like a father caring for a child. They yeah. they are they are pristine and probably don't need much more than a a really cursory digital cleanup. But mm. the the elements are pristine. Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. Russ, right? Uh, the HBO series Curb Your Enthusiasm, the complete ninth. Season, um, you know, I, I I remember when this. I remember the actual stand-up special called "Curb Your Enthusiasm" that Larry David did That's in right. 1999. That was ultimately the the, yeah. the catalyst uh, to this yeah. actual to this actual series, which was always an interesting series. Uh, you know, that sort of camera with him talking to the camera, all that kind of stuff like that. I, I enjoyed this series, but I didn't watch it for the entire run. Uh, somewhere along yeah. the line, I bailed for yeah. no reason whatsoever. I was just like, ah, you know, I'm tired of watching this pissy guy running yeah. around uh, starting fights with people yeah. uh, for no reason whatsoever. But I always got it. It was a very, very sort of funny show uh, in which a lot of really interesting people showed up, as do in this uh, particular season. Uh, this one has bonus features, which includes memorable moments and deleted scenes. Uh, you know, it's kind of a neat show. Curb your enthusiasm. 
Uh, we also have the uh, Star Lego Star Wars Empire, which is a, a strange thing. You know, there's there's all of these weird overlapping oh. circles, and there is the the Lego animated world, which includes the Lego TV shows and the Lego movies and all that. And then that overlaps with the DC world, the Batman, the Batman, the Superman, Batman, yeah, yeah. And, then, and all that. Yeah. And it also overlaps with Star Wars, yeah. which is weird. Because you in, know, a, in a very sort of disjointed, odd way, in which none of the actual Star Wars characters, you know, lay, uh, you know, yeah. don't really show up that much. And it's, it's. I'm not. I'm. I'm still trying to sort of figure out how all the rights to these things crisscross. Because Lego, you know, is partly stepping on the DC world, mm. and then Lego's also stepping on a Disney mm. thing, and those are, you know. I'm I'm just surprised. I, I anyway, I'm not quite sure how it all fits together, but it's making money for Lego, and uh, they, you know, that they they, they were on that, that company almost went bankrupt once, uh, before they invented the Lego blocks. Yeah, it's fascinating history. So in any case, this is the uh, Lego Star Wars: The Freemaker Adventures Complete Season Two, twelve episodes, plus five shorts, and you even get a Darth Vader pin as part of this. Uh, you know the because everybody needs their Darth Vader pen. I guess I, I, you know, I don't know why this is necessary. I don't know why people need to see a an animated Lego version of anything of, of anything. Yeah, I, I I have an issue with these films. The, the first one, uh, the Lego, I don't know whatever the Lego movie. Yeah, saw that movie. You know, I, I got it. Neat joke. Um, but I had already experienced all of those wonderful Lego movies yeah. that people take painstakingly, move Legos around, li- their doing own little stop home motion, Lego. Yeah, 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 stop motion animation, basically, I- including ones that were homages to Batman and and and, yeah. and all of the other things. But they were, they were actually physical physical Legos. Animated Legos doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. It, it, animation is already animation. Animating a Lego, it no, I. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the idea here is, you know, you're still dealing with the adventures of the Freemaker family, who are, of course, the subject of this this uh, this animated thing, and uh, they're fighting the Empire, and you know, it's it's trying to approach that whole story in the original Star Wars from an alternate point of view, and perhaps even an alternate Star Wars universe because yeah. it doesn't really have anything to do have anything to do. It doesn't really coincide in any meaningful way with no. with anything else, including the Clone Wars, which is a different Star Wars yeah. series with different animation. I, it's, Not, it's all no Lego, no Lego. Yeah, in, in the Clone I, I feel Wars. I feel sorry for Star Wars purists who feel obligated to, to actually have to watch all this stuff because I don't really get the point. But anyway, uh, there it is. If you if you really dig it. Yeah, you can do their do your thing. Uh, Major Crimes, which is a spinoff, if I'm not mistaken, of the Closer. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the sixth and final season of Major Cli- uh, Crimes. Always love Mary um, Mary McDonald in this. Uh, a powerful show. I, I I rather enjoyed Major Crimes. I don't get into a whole lot of the police dramas, but the performances in this show are actually quite good, as are the storylines. Uh, in this sixth and final series. Uh, a character from uh, a previous series, a sort of serial rapist is what he was, uh, 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 comes back into the show and all kinds of things go down. A lot of politics in this show, too. So like uh, big city politics. Uh, always remi- always, always reminiscent of a John Sayles film to me. Uh, yeah. City of City of City Hope. of Hope. City of Love Hope. Love that movie. Uh, this the way this show. Yeah, exactly. Whatever happened to Vincent Spano? Oh, man. Well, actually, I, I, I would bump into Vincent out on the old red carpet circuit oh, uh, yeah. quite a while doing the uh, charity thing. 
Uh, still looked great, uh, uh, Vincent. But yeah, Good actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, major crimes uh, includes blooper reel, never before seen, uh, be seen deleted scenes. So there was a thing that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, when all of these um, first-run syndication period mm. action shows happened. Yeah. That was the, the era dominated by Hercules and Xena. Yeah. And there was a whole lot of other stuff that oh, happened. Yeah. There, was a, there was a really All good, that stuff on UPN Network. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, yeah there, was a, cool, yeah. there was a bad Robin Hood show that oh, they yeah. shot in, in, like, Lithuania, yeah. you know. It was a lot of that. It was a lot of that. <laughs> a lot of that. Uh, you know, they shot them in New Zealand. They shot them in <laughs> Lithuania. They yeah. shot them in Bulgaria, yeah. they, right? All that stuff uh, for, for a buck and a half. And this is one I don't even remember. <sighs> Crossbow, The Legend of William Tell. Oh, middle middle 80s. Yeah, it's um, like '87, and it's and it's and it's. Um, Did you do you remember this? Oh yeah, uh, it, it was wow. uh, it, because it was because that's a, we were talking about Switzerland earlier. Yeah, and the William Tell stories, you know, Switzerland. Oh yeah, the they, whole thing they, they the love king their, Oh and, yeah, and the son of the thing, all, all that kind of He's stuff. He's basically Robin Hood to Switzerland. Exactly, and 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 that series sort of tried to speak to the actual historical yeah. context out of which the starring which Will the, starring Will Lyman, who yeah, had a, which is a, guy, had a yeah. moment, yeah. Uh yeah, I, you know it, it it it's basically very. I mean, he has a crossbow, but basically he's uh you know he's uh, he's he's facing off against uh, Governor Gessler, who's played by Jeremy Clyde here, uh, trying to stop an uprising. Who might as who's basically you know uh, the sheriff of Nottingham. Let's face it, it's the same kind of dynamic. And I I had no idea this even exists. This ran for three seasons, seventy two episodes, and it's amazing who shows up on this show. I mean, the, the the guest stars are amazing. Roger Daltrey shows yeah, up here. Yeah. Robert Guillaume pops in. <laughs> Steve Buscemi. Yeah, I love it. Sarah Michelle yeah, Gellar. Yeah, this is crazy. Yeah. It's, it's mad. I, I I had no idea this show even existed. It's I not bad. That. It's not I, bad. I remember as, that. As far yeah. as these shows go, this yeah. is not bad. It's it's it, you know it, it you could do worse. There she's like a little girl in that show. The Good Fight, which is a spinoff of The Good Wife. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Christine Baranski, uh, uh, Dale Roy Lindo, and a few others. Interesting sort of. Uh, and again, as we as 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 um, and the good and the good wife might have been the one. The, the theme of the good wife being, of course, that the uh, um, she was married to this guy. He does some yeah. shady stuff. She yeah. has to pull out the old law degree and, yep. in order to. So this one, uh, Christine Baranski uh, is running this investment firm. Somebody does something shady. It wipes her out. She's 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 down to nothing, down to zero, and she has to again. Uh, you know, pull out the law degree, go back to work, and fight her way back from nothing. Look, I like these television programs about women yep. um, uh, operating at the highest levels of government and or corporate and or legal this, that, or the other thing, uh, making their way in these quote-unquote men's worlds. Mm -hmm. Because what's interesting about all of these shows uh, is, the, uh, is that th these are really women's worlds. And the men only think they're running them, and what's going, and what we watch when we watch these. Same thing with the Good Wife. It's what we're we're, we're watching the way women have to operate uh, in, in 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 these in these worlds in order to get the things that they want, uh, which is really just fairness and justice. That's the thing that I like about these shows. If if these shows were were flipped around the other way around, men men Dallas, men were always doing something dastardly. Yes, always. Yeah, that's not what's going on in these shows. No, women are fighting in these shows for justice and fairness, but they're willing to do what it takes to get their uh, their justice. And I and I and I love that about these shows. The good the good fight, smart, strong. Well, uh, neat show. Speaking of uh, strong women uh, fighting there in a men's world, fighting to get on top and and stay there, brings us to season six 
of Kendra uh, on top. Kendra on top. Kendra. <laughs> you, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> back when I was doing a lot of red carpets, I would end up over at the Playboy Mansion quite yeah. a lot. They have, they, you know, he's dead now, and they sold it and all kinds. Of, but but yeah. but half uh, was still there. They'd have these things. Yeah. I used to talk to that chick two three times a week. Yeah, Kendra. She was a, one of the. She was one of the uh, three. Was it three? I think it was three yeah, of them, three, right? Yeah. Three blondes that yeah. he was quote unquote. Well, um, married to her, whatever. She did her. She did her time. Well, still doing her time as a uh, a reality star. I, you know, I really kind of don't get it. I don't. Nah, I don't. She, I don't get reality TV, but I don't but, I, but I particularly don't get that. No, she, she ended up marrying a guy uh, from she, they, the, an they, NFL guy. This, this, yeah, and that's that's a topic here. She's like separated from him for a little bit because she's gone to Vegas because she's trying to start a thing, and then she fights with her mom, and it gets all very contrived. Look, none of this is reality, yeah. people. This is scripted. Yes. I want people to understand that when you watch this or even the Kardashians, this stuff is scripted. They don't just sort of say, "Well, let's see what no. happens in your life, and we'll no. capture it." Oh, no, let, no, I don't know if I ever mentioned it on the show before, but of course, I worked in reality television yeah. for quite a while. And I worked in black reality television, which is even crazier than all the other. So I worked on uh, DMX, The Soul of a Man. DMX was a, a fairly popular rapper in the early 2000s. For five seconds. For five, yeah. Uh, which is uh, longer uh, than most of them yeah, these days. You know, he managed to pull off the thing. Plus, he had a, he had, you know, he would, he would uh, um, oh, control substances uh, was, was, yeah. was his problem. I worked on Lil' Kim. Uh, the Lil' Kim, Lil Kim had, a, <laughs> yeah. had a reality show. Uh, I worked on it until she went to prison. Uh, she oh. came back from prison because she went to prison for right. for for um, she wouldn't she would not I tell you this about Lil Kim, Lil Kim went to prison because she wouldn't rat out. Wow. She she would not. She, they put it on the stand. They told her you're gonna. She she wouldn't rat. She wouldn't talk. Lil Kim would not talk. Every gangster that they put on actual gangster, you know the yeah. dudes on yeah. the stand. Every one of them sang like a canary. <laughs> every one of the badass gangsters, brothers with the gold and all this yeah. kind of sang like a canary. Lil Kim put it on. Lil Kim, I ain't talking. Lil Kim, I ain't talking. <laughs> oh, Did no. not talk. Lil Kim went to prison for eighteen months. I ain't talking. Lil no, Kim, okay. Biggie taught her well. Came out of prison. Lil Kim wasn't that little no more. Lil' Kim came out of prison weighing about 160. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Tried to start the TV show up again, the reality yeah. show. And we were like, hmm. <laughs> Got mad at us because she said we made her look fat and quit the show. And I'm like, no, Kim, prison food made you look fat, sweetie. Not, it wasn't us. I was on that show, uh, the College Hill series, all perfectly insane, made up. Crap! It's uh, I have only once been exposed. I I have scrupulously avoided watching anything Kardashian on television. I have only once been exposed to that circus, and it was uh, when I was going to do some shopping for my aunt, my elderly aunt who's since passed. But I was going to do some shopping for my aunt at the Trader Joe's out in Agora Hills, where where she lived, and. I pull in, and uh, there are, like, I, I mean, normally it's just a little parking lot of the Trader Joe's, and you pull in and you park. There was not a parking spot to be had. I was nearly hit by two cars <laughs> as I was coming in, zipping around me, paparazzi piling everywhere, a van zips by, nearly sideswipes me. I think, what, on, what in blazes is going on? And there is Kardashian mom strolling along to go shopping, posing while she's (laughs) strutting. And there there are like five video cameras and at least 20 still photographers who are just completely swarming her. And and she's, you know, just kind of strutting it and enjoying the attention. 
And I'm thinking, I have no idea which one of these. Ca- wh- wh- who's working for her show and yeah. who's just tagging along? Yeah. I don't know. I don't care. I'm gonna go in. I'm gonna, you know, grab some milk and bananas and get get out of here because I don't want to be on in any way attached to this nonsense. It was insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't I don't get it. I don't. Anyway. I'm, that can only exist here. It can only exist here. It's pure nuts. Uh, can I can I talk about this one? Do it. The 14 disc Blu-ray set, gigantic blue box, BBC, the complete Peter Capaldi years. Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, first of all, ludicrous Doctor Who fan here. I go with the Doctor. I'm a, I'm a Tom Baker guy. This is how far back I go. Uh, I go with the Doctor all the way back to the middle 70s. Tom Baker was the fourth Doctor around 75, 76, 74, 75. The first one who wasn't old. Uh, the first one who wasn't old, and, 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 and exactly, and had this verb. He was sort of like, yeah. uh, you know, with the hair and the scarf. Anybody yeah. ever seen me in my scarves? That's me and Tom Baker. Big fan of the Peter Capaldi years, which is the year uh, before the current season that's on now. So Peter Capaldi's uh, Doctor. First of all, some absolutely brilliant writing, brilliant, brilliant. And you'll know Peter Capaldi. What was that wonderful series? Did, uh, that, that British series did that he was in? Oh, about the house. Uh, uh, anyway, he's a, a wonderful British actor who's in a, a number of absolutely hysterical. Um, um, uh, and look, I loved his companions in the series. I love the writing in this particular series. The standalone episodes are absolutely extraordinary, as well as the th- sort of through line episodes that are always there. Uh, River Song, um, uh, some of the actresses. I loved it. Bill on the show, the, his last companion before that, as the series sort of came to an end. Black woman who happened to be gay in the context of yeah. the series. Just, just you know, th- but again, it's just this thing. And as you were watching the show over that that last season, yeah, um, you only really came to understand that she was gay, uh, sort of like by osmosis, yeah. You know, because she was always like jonesing on these hot chicks, but yeah. no, the, but the actual, <laughs> but the actual words never came out of anybody else, anybody's mouth. Yep. Uh, and I love the way they played that. I'm a big fan of Peter Capaldi uh, uh, too. So this is a fantastic box. Big ass box includes hours and hours of bonus features, uh, deleted scenes from all of the various different episodes. So for every episode you've seen, there's more stuff here. Fantastic. And, and particularly as we work our way toward that last episode, now that everyone knows now the new doctor, yeah, the current doctor is a woman, yeah. And as we work our way toward that, and he goes through his transformation, yeah. he goes through, and and we sort of, uh, it's it's just the neatest thing in the world. There should have been a female doctor. A long time ago. A long time. And they've talked about yeah. it. He's talked about it, Because too. there was I've no reason a, yeah. for there not to be a female doctor. Yeah. The whole point of the doctor is that he... Yeah. Trans- Regenerates. Yeah, yeah. And, we even, and even in the context of the show, previously we knew that the doctor had been a woman because yeah. it was a thing that the other doctors yes. would talk about. The other. So, yeah. you know, it was just no reason for it. Anyway, uh, they did it. It's an outstanding thing. I love the Peter Capaldi years. Yeah. Check it out before you move on to Fantastic. the lady doctor. Fantastic stuff. Um, what do you want to do that? about what do you want to do about this one? Well, you know, we should we should make mention of it, we and should. then we're going to talk about it more on a future show. Yeah, because we're going to have some interviews yes. uh, with some of the stars. So the series, uh, Blu-ray uh, and digital, is Into the Badlands. I have the complete second season here. Right, and of course Sherman Augustus, who has been on this show in the past, yes, uh, with John Bruno, he was in the yeah. he was in the film Virus. Sherman's a longtime working actor. He's uh, one of the co-stars in this series now. Showed up in this season. Yep. Sherman is in the second season. His character is Nathaniel Moon. Yeah, uh, fantastic character that, he, that that he's playing. But now this is an interesting series. It's sort of um, an amalgamation of uh, 
well, chop sake, it's, swords, it's, swords it's, and sorcery. You it's know, basically, it's basically the road warrior yes. mixed with Hong Kong martial arts, yeah. set primarily in the UK with a very international cast. Well, interna- yeah, there. Nick Frost Just shows great. up in the series. All kinds of people. It's a really neat series. Uh, we'll be starting up. It's third season. Uh, well, in a couple of months from yeah. from, from the recording of this yeah. show, yeah, uh, and and uh, we're going to be talking to soon. We're going to be talking to Sherman again, uh, who has a very who, big role. Who in is the show. shooting in Ireland right now? Shooting. And literally, just talked to him a little while ago yeah. uh, 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 about the all kinds of stuff that we can't mention right now, as well as uh, a couple of showrunners, Latoya, and and yeah. we're going to talk to about the show, the nature of the show, and what's going on, and some really neat things that it's, we have. Going it's on really on. cool. So, so we'll be we'll be doing that soon. Into the Badlands returns to a. AMC uh, on April the 22nd. Yes. Uh, moving to foreign, I'm going to get into a little bit of foreign stuff right here. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start with Nowhere in Africa. Now, Nowhere in Africa, hang on, I'm going to. There we go. Moving things around the table. Yeah. Nowhere in Africa won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars uh, in 2000, for 2001. Uh, Nowhere in Africa is a beautiful, wonderful, amazing film. Great score, incredible widescreen photography. Uh, really, an unbelievably deserving foreign language film winner. It's uh, it's you know it's two and a half hours long. It's just it's incredibly moving. And uh, I interviewed uh, writer director Caroline Link at the time uh, for a piece that I wrote. I think it was my uh, German cinema piece for the L.A. Times, if memory serves. Uh, but it was um, it, it was it was a really fascinating interview with her, and it's it's uh, it's just such an incredibly accomplished film. And uh, what's really troubling me is it, it's it, none of her subsequent films have been released yeah. here. I mean, uh, you know, you, you think you win an Oscar, and suddenly you you get your movies released widely in the in the world. Not necessarily true. Uh, mm. it, it didn't translate that way, but it's too bad. Kino and Zeitgeist have released this on Blu-ray and on DVD. The Blu-ray comes with uh, interviews and deleted scenes and storyboard stuff and uh, making of documentary. But more than anything, the story is is what gets you. And as much as I like a movie like Out of Africa, um, it, it, it's sort of really just scratching the surface of what this film does. This takes place in 1938, and it is the true story of a Jewish family who flees what is certain to be obviously eventually becomes the Holocaust um, to live on a farm in Kenya. Mm. And uh, this actually happened, and there were quite a lot of families, Jewish families, that were better off and had the means to do this who relocated to elsewhere in the world uh, when it was clear that things were going to go south very, very quickly in Germany. And um, it, is, it is just such a, an absolutely fascinating story um, because it is, it's not just about this family. It is about Kenya. It is about the people that they live with. It is about what's happening in Kenya while the rest of the world is disintegrating and how you know, all of these people manage to live together and where, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's in, in terms of the look of, at culture and, and humanity and people from different countries, it's really just a fascinating film. And I can't, rem- I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, from Kino Lorber and Zeitgeist, the Oscar-winning Nowhere in Africa by Caroline Link. Get it on Blu-ray. It is widescreen, so beautiful. One of, one of those classically beautiful films I've seen in so long. Absolutely fantastic. Um, some other foreign language films that are worth recommending. Uh, from the Dominican Republic, Woodpeckers, ah, yeah. uh, which was their submission for the Oscars. It, it's, uh, it did not get nominated. Uh, it's still a very, very good film. And uh, this was also this also played Sundance in the uh, World Cinema section at Sundance. Um, this is a 
this all takes place in in a in a Dominican prison, and uh, it's a really really tough film. Um, it, it deals with the subject when it says woodpeckers. Woodpeckers is a is a word that describes the way that sign language is used. Um, to communicate between male and female inmates mm. so that the uh, authorities, the prison guards and, and officials don't know what you are saying. Yeah. So it's like it's like baseball signing, right? Yeah. It's a, or, a Morse right, code of sorts. Morse code of sorts. And uh, it is it is about the politics of of how to survive in prison, both men and women. It is it's a it's a really really powerful gripping film. It's really very well very accomplished. It bodes incredibly well for the uh, the Dominican film industry, which is barely a film industry. Um, the director Jose Maria Cabral is quite accomplished, and uh, I really really look forward to seeing more come out of this uh, come out of this industry. So uh, Dominican Republic is making some interesting movies. At least in this one case, uh, Rift is uh, one of those icy cold Scandinavian thriller movies that uh, come out every so often. What was the one that uh, that uh, Chris Nolan remade? Oh. Swedish film. Uh, oh yeah, with the uh, Stellan Skarsgård starred in the original one. Oh yeah, it's out of my head right now. Yeah, I'm the blank on. Anyway, uh, this is a this is basically like a like a. Um, an LGBT film gone wrong set in Iceland. Maybe yeah. that's the only way I can put this. Uh, this is from Breaking Glass Pictures. Uh, it's very, very accomplished, but Icelandic cinema is, of course, a thing unto itself, and uh, Scandinavian cinema is a thing unto itself, and when Icelandic cinema... And anyway, it's... Uh, but it's... Um, it's a uh, it, it's a it's it, un, unlike most LGBT films about male relationships. This isn't about finding yourself or about uh, the romance or the love necessarily. Uh, this is a straight up thriller, and it's uh, it's about a relationship gone wrong and um, how wrong it goes, which can be pretty wrong. Uh, this played out fest in uh, Los Angeles, but it also played a fantastic fest. Yeah. So it is uh, definitely a crossover film. It has mainstream aspect to it. And again, it's very stylish and, and very, very cool. Uh, let's see what else here. I'll make mention of these three. Uh, Court by uh, Chaitanya Tamhane. Uh, was, this is also from Kino Lorber and Zeitgeist. This film is a, uh, a popular film, apparently, for Sean Baker, who directed and wrote The Florida Project, mm -hmm. because he is quoted with a poll quote in this, uh, who calls it one of the strongest debuts ever, my favorite film of 2014. That was about the time that he made Tangerine. Uh, this did really, really well internationally with uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of festivals. Um, it is uh, an Indian film in a number of Indian languages. I'm not going to call it a, a Bollywood film because it, it kind of crosses over between uh, a bunch of uh, Indian film industries. Uh, and it uh, basically is just a study of the, the, all of the caste issues that are tearing India apart to this day, which they've done a really good job minimizing and addressing over this over the generations but it's so ancient and so rooted uh it, and it, it just it, it still is a real problem in the country so this is a a effectively a look at that and uh also quoted on the uh, on the box is uh, joshua oppenheimer who did the act of killing who uh you know loves it for many of the same reasons apparently so um the movie is called court 
and uh, it's pretty powerful. Uh, from Christoph Ali and Nicolas Bonellari is The Assistant, starring French legend Natalie Bai, along with Malik Zidi. I am a huge Natalie Bai fan. The only thing that upsets me about this, which is from Distrib Films, who does a, acquires and releases a lot of foreign language stuff, and uh, the home video license here is with Icarus, uh, it's not on Blu-ray, and this really should be on Blu-ray. It's a, it's a beautifully shot film. It's a really cool kind of Hitchcockian thriller uh, with uh, that the, the deals with one of those, um, oh, how, how, how to even describe this. So it, there's a death. There's a death. Mm, let's see. Okay, Malik Zidi is responsible for someone's death. And the mother of the person who dies is played by Natalie Bai. And uh, it is, this is the story about how that death affects these two people on a trajectory that goes for many, many years. That's all I'll tell you about it. Uh, It is absolutely worth seeing. It is really well written. It is really, really well shot. Um, it's really a superb film in, in every conceivable way, and uh, it, I believe it may have screened here at Cocoa. If it didn't, it should have. Uh, the Assistant by Christoph Ali and Nicola Bonlauri, starring Natalie Bai and Malik Zidi. Really a cool movie. And uh, let's see, I'll leave these others until next week. Uh, the last one here I'll mention is uh, Frederick Mermuz Mocha, which is released by uh, Film Movement. Uh, this also has Natalie Bai in it. Uh, it is also about a, a mother and a son in an accident and trying to resolve everything to do with that. Natalie Bai, in this case, is not the mother. Emmanuel DeVos is the mother. But it is an equally cool uh, thriller by, uh, the, um, uh, by the, uh, a nov- from a novel by the same author as Sarah's Key, which mm. is a very different film. Sarah's Key is more, you know, period and all that. But uh, this is very cool. Also has a short film, Le Creneau, by the same director, Frederick Mermou. Uh, also with Emmanuel DeVos, and uh, a really cool cool thriller. Yeah, okay. Uh, can I knock off a couple of yeah, these uh, yeah, by all means. Uh, classics here? Archive, Warner Archive Collection, two films, Ross McDonald adaptations. I was a big fan of Ross McDonald, you know, those great detective novels. The first detective that uh, Paul Newman ever played was Harper in 1966. Um, uh, yeah, I love these films. Um, it's a it's it's kind of a neat movie that uh, has Paul Newman playing opposite Janet Lee, who plays his wife in the film. Right, he's this detective. Uh, he has to go. Uh, Lauren McCall has a has a has a, a situation. Her husband's been kidnapped. He has to get Harper to go get him. Yeah. But most of the movie is really about Harper and Janet Lee, who, and, and all that kind of bits. Right. This is 1966 film. Neat movie. I think the title sequence was done by the great uh, Saul Bass. Bass. I'm almost certain of it. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, Paul Newman's first outing as a detective, uh, Lou Harper, uh, adaptation of Ross McDonald. Fast forward to 19, I believe this is 1975. He's playing Harper again, uh, this time in The Drowning Pool. Sweet. That's uh, a great film. A great film. Neat film. Uh, this time opposite Joanne, his wife in the film, right? It's all set in New Orleans. And interestingly, Melanie Griffith, very young Melanie Griffith, obviously, uh, is in the film playing Joanne's daughter. Jo- Melanie, of course, being the daughter of Janet Lee, who uh, uh, he played Harper 
opposite in in 1966. Interesting little through line there. I cool. Thought. Uh, cool. Uh, that's going. Anyway, and the Drowning Pool is a pretty neat movie. Uh, special features: a vignette. Uh, Harper days are here again. Uh, you don't. You know. You don't see. They don't make movies like this as movies anymore. They don't. These guys now are on. Leif Shriver plays this guy. I know. On television. On, on Showtime, yeah. basically. Yeah. Uh, got a couple of uh, got some stuff here from the opposite ends of the spectrum. Mill Creek on the uh, bargain end, and Criterion on the high end. Let me give you the Mill Creek stuff first. Uh, we got a uh, Mill Creek Nine Lives movie collection, all on Blu-ray. Nine films. Let me repeat that: nine films on Blu-ray. Nine films on Blu-ray, wow. including SWAT, which uh, is, that shows you how far that film has fallen. Uh, Universal Soldier: The Return, Vertical Limit. Um, Last Action Hero, which I really love. You know, Bridget's in the Last Action Hero. Is she really? Bridget's in the Last Action. Really? Hero. Yeah, my wife is. In you the last got. Action I've hero. got. We've got to watch that again. Yeah. I love Last Action Hero. I did the junk. It's for that. really. It's. You know what? It. It. It flopped. I know it did. At the it time. tanked hard. But it's an absolutely hysterical film that's so it's clever and so inside. It's about the movie industry and what goes on with it's Arnold like, Schwarzenegger it's playing. Like, it's like uh, Keaton Sherlock Jr. elevated to an action yeah. film, self-reflexive thing with, with Schwarzenegger playing himself, basically. Yeah. And, and, and at one point when he says, you know, do you know how much pain you've caused me? I just <laughs> thought, wow, that's pretty honest. Uh, this also has Blind Fury with Rutger Hauer playing, you know, a blind samurai yeah. white guy. Um, but here's the reason to get the white line fever, which is an old, you know, uh, uh, grindhouse truck movie. But here's the reason to get this. Forget about Last Action Hero, which is really good, or SWAT, which isn't terrible. You get this for Silent Rage. Yeah, that's the only reason you Chuck. get this. Chuck Norris in Silent Rage <laughs> is one of the funniest times I have ever had in a movie theater. I saw this at a preview, and everyone was howling. This is about a guy who looks like Mick Jagger. Who is who goes on a rampage because he's, he's shot up with some sort of drug? It's yeah, he's, some, he's some killed sort of a scientific crap. Yeah, goes he's on. killed a lot of people, yeah. and and Chuck Norris is the sheriff who shows up in his ten gallon hat and blows this guy away, and he has to shoot him a few times, and then this guy goes into the morgue where there is some mad scientist who says, "Who the perfect perfect experiment? <laughs> I'll just shoot you up with serum," which makes him <gasps> invincible. Yes, he is unkillable <gasps> at this point, and now he goes uh, and and basically the rest of the movie is just Chuck Norris desperately trying to figure out how to kill this guy because nothing works. No bullet. You, you, you he runs over on, the guy with a Bronco. He runs over him with a car. You set him on fire. Nothing it's you do to this guy, he will not die. So it's just Chuck Truck, Chuck, desperately trying to figure out how do you kill this guy. It's, a, it's hysterical. It's a stone-cold riot. I always thought there was going to be a sequel. Well, it sets it up for it, for but it just yeah, that, that, that last thing, yeah. And then uh, we get a couple of uh, from Mill Creek Hammer Films double features: Maniac and Die Die Darling on one, and uh, Scream of Fear and Never Take Candy from a Stranger on the other. Um, these are really kind of low-level Hammer films. Hammer made more movies than anybody can even possibly count. Uh, these are both Blu-rays. They are strictly for, for Hammer purists, I would say. Uh, there's some interesting filmmaking in these. Uh, Never Take Candy from a Stranger has some really interesting widescreen photography. Um, you know, the, but and Die Die Darling is kind of <laughs> funny in a silly way. Stephanie Powers and Donald Sutherland are really camping it up. Tallulah Bankhead is very, very funny. Um, but, uh, you know, on balance, the, you, you really want to kind of uh, reserve these if you're, a, if you're a, a hammer purist, a hammer completist. And then on the Criterion end of things, we have an amazing week, amazing week of Criterion. 
The first one is the the one that is kind of least known, actually. Uh, Bertolt Brecht wrote a play called Baal, mm. based on the, the biblical uh, god of the Canaanites. Oh. Uh, B-A-A-L. Not, oh, not that, like soccer ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, it's uh, like the, the god ball. Is that, fa- is, that, is, that fast, is that fast binder well, film? Fassbinder acts he, he's, in he, it. He plays he's, that character. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Fassbender plays Ball, which is interesting casting. The play is Brechtian, and then uh, the director is Volker Schlondorf, who, of course, uh, did the, the Tin Drum and oh, and, uh, many uh, other great a, films. A version, a version of uh, that Margaret Atwood, that the yes. Handmaid's Tale. Yes, Handmaid's he did Tale. The, he did the he film did version. The with film version. Duvall and, and all those people. Yeah. So this is a new 2K digital restoration of the 1970 film, which is very much part of the new German cinema movement of which Schlondorf and... And Wim Wenders and uh, you know Fassbinder, they were all a part of it. They all signed the Oberhausen Manifesto. Uh, so anyway, this is a this is a really this is so this is a really kind of a historic film in many regards, and uh, it's got the Schlondorf approved director approved label on it. Um, comes with some really interesting extras. Conversation between Ethan Hawke and uh, playwright Jonathan Sherman about the play and this adaptation, which is really interesting. Uh, there's a new interview with uh, Margareta von Trotta, who is another figure of the new German cinema, who, who yeah. uh, also acts in this. The lost honor of Katharina Bloom. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, so this is a this is a really really it's a very it's a it's a really really interesting movie and uh, very much part of the new German cinema. Um, the other the other two you will know absolutely right out of the gate. Uh, the Age of Innocence, Martin Scorsese's beautiful, almost yeah. too beautiful 1993 film. Uh, there were a lot of beautiful movies in '93. That was the year, of course, of uh, Schindler's List yeah. and The Remains of the Day. And, and, and a lot of those films. Well, I was just about to say that yeah. th- that sort of Merchant Ivory thing had yeah. sort of infested everything. Infested, I say, infested. Yeah. Uh, uh, insinuated itself into everything. Yeah. And even Scorsese uh, doing that, doing that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. so it's beautiful. Yeah. It's 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 a gorgeous gorgeous movie, uh, and you know the, it, Daniel Day Lewis and Winona Ryder, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just it's you know the the world of Edith Wharton, the turn of the century New world, York. Where New York, yeah, and the, Washington the, the Square manners itself, and all yeah. that. It's got one. It's got one of those legendary Scorsese, you know, mm. single shot tracking uh, shots in it. It's just gorgeous stuff. Um, Dante Ferretti. Uh, Scorsese, Gabriella Pascucci, they're all interviewed here. Lots of great stuff. He was working outside of what had become known as his genre. Yeah. Because, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd been the Goodfellas, we'd been the obviously yep. all that kind of stuff. Yep. So it, it, was, it, it was a shift for him when he made that movie. Very much so. Yeah. And then we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap out today with the Passion of Joan of Arc, the Carl Theodore Dreyer uh, ah. silent film from 1928. Oh, the close-ups, the close-ups. It's just one of the most beautiful films ever made. Uh, and this, of course, had shots in some of the in at least one of the montages on the Academy Awards recently. Yeah. Um, this is just a, an, an unbelievably great movie. I, I didn't love it as much when I saw it in school, partly because you're seeing it in school and there are shots of you know people mm. tops of people's heads and sides of their faces, and it's some very avant-garde. It uh, influenced my first photography quite a lot as I was growing up. I'm sure it did. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Uh, but, you know, when you get a little older, you look back on this and you realize that nobody did close-ups like this in no. the silent era. No. I mean, they get right, right up into her face and, and it's, it's, it's just, it's jarring. I mean, it really changed a lot. Uh, Renee Falconetti is the actress who wound up basically being known for this performance for her entire career. She yeah. did, really didn't do anything else of note. But, the, but you know, you see the texture of her skin. You see the, the tears in her eyes, the moist, uh, the moist eyes. It's, it's what you see here from yeah. a photographic standpoint 
revolutionized cinema. It yeah, was considering what it did, the new technology, the lighting, and when you look at it, oddly, yeah. 1928, this film, yeah. it is insanely contemporary. In, amazingly so. You know, yeah. when you watch it, you would just yeah. not have any idea. Even her with the hair cut and, the, yeah. and her face. It's a she has a contemporary face. It's and, quite beautiful. And what Dreyer does visually with the camera is, you know, he, he broke all kinds of rules, and it really still stands as the film for which he will forever be known. Tons and tons of extras here. Um, you get three scores which is wonderful because all three scores are amazing. The one most commonly known is Richard Einhorn's Voices of Light, which is one of the most recent ones. Um, but uh, it's and there is there is still a fourth score which you can get on on CD, which is not included here, which is a, 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 a I think a Danish score. Mm. But uh, nonetheless, you get the Voices of Light. You get uh, uh, one by uh, Will Gregory and Adrian Utley, and then you also get the one by uh, Mi Anashita. They're all fantastic. Voices of Light, of course, is obviously the most famous. There's a new conversation between uh, Gregory and Utley, and uh, an interview from 1995 with the daughter of Renee Falconetti. Mm. So uh, this is just wonderful in every conceivable way, and uh, I, y y if you are a movie fan of any kind, you have to have this. So... That is it. We are done for this week, ah. and uh, we will see you guys next week as we move into the spring. Mm.